Redeemer family and guests, it is so good to be with you. Uh, man, I love this idea of a combined service. We are uh, worship at two different times, and so I'm sure you, you're seeing people that you may not get to see in the life of the church, so it is a beautiful thing to have us together. There are a few seats over here to my right in case you need one, but it looks like we're all taken care of. Man, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to John chapter 1. We're going to be considering the theme of Advent, waiting no more. Advent, waiting no more. I'll read John 1, uh, verses 1 through 18. And this is a prologue, so it's the introduction to the rest of the gospel. John is writing this to, one, give you the shape of the rest of the gospel, but to, to whet our appetites that we would uh, dig deeper into it. And so this is uh, John's prologue. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the inspiration of it. Thank you, Lord, that it is alive, that it is true, that it is inerrant, it is undefiled. It is profitable, Lord, for our lives of godliness. It is worthy to be cherished and pondered and received and obeyed. And Father, as we come to the text, Lord, we are mindful that um, we don't do that. It's easy, Lord, to hear but not listen, to see but not ponder, to receive but to not hide and cherish. And so by your spirit, would you allow your words to fall afresh upon our hearts, forgive us of our sins, there are many, and mature us in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past month, as we've looked at Advent, we've looked at this idea of, of waiting. And uh, Matthew, Jesus reminds us to be those who wait faithfully for his return. 
And he's calling us to be normal Christians who uh, repent and believe and who serve him and steward our time well as we wait for his arrival. Then we looked at Exodus where we understand that waiting will entail sorrow. And God in his kindness sends people along to bear that burden with us. But he is sending someone greater than us to make sorrows uh, end. He's sending Jesus back. We looked at Isaiah where Isaiah reminded us that it's possible to wait in sorrow and to wait on the return of Jesus with hope. And hope is not just wishful thinking. That biblical hope is a conviction that God will do what God says he will do because he has done what he says he will do in the past. And so biblical hope is looking at God's track record saying you have been faithful and therefore you will be faithful in the future to send your son back to us. But those were things that we were waiting on in the future that I tried to orient everything that we considered around the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for that. But here's the question before you. Are there blessings that are ours right now because of his first advent? Let me see if this chart helps you. Here you go, Andre. So if you read books on theology, you might hear scholars say the already and the not yet. Y'all heard that phrase? The, the, the not yet, it means those things that are not consummated, right? That, 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 that they're not fully complete right now. So in the not yet category, you, we don't have glorified bodies. We still die. But a day is coming when you will get a new body. That's in the future at Jesus' second coming. Right now we die. Right now creation groans and it waits for the revealing of the sons of the Lord. They're tsunamis, right? But in the future, when Jesus returns, that creation will clap its hands, says Isaiah, right? That right now Satan has been defeated, but he is on change and he still roams around like a roaring lion. Right now we hear of wars and rumors of wars, but there is coming a day when all the things that we go to war with will be beaten into garden tools. We're not there yet, but it's coming. Right now, the church is still most segregated during the time it gathers on Sunday mornings. But in the future, we're going to be a part of that church that John sees, that people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language will be bowing down together, right? That right now you struggle with sin. But when Jesus returns, you will struggle no more. And so we're waiting, right? And all of these things will come into fruition at his second coming. And so right now we're waiting on that to happen. But here's what I want to press in this morning. What are we not waiting on? What is ours right now because of the first coming? In other words, when Jesus came, as we've been singing about all this morning, as he came through the Virgin Mary in her womb, fully God, truly man, who was raised and who grew up and who accomplished something on the cross for us, who died in our place and paid penalty for our sins and who was raised and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, did he accomplish some things for us now that we can marvel in right now? 
And that's what I want to press in this morning. And so Advent is a looking forward to what he will do. But Advent is also looking back to what he has done. Thank you, Andre. Advent is a time to wait faithfully for the future of Jesus. But it's a time to experience a waiting no more posture right now. Now, I want to show you in the text that John has this in mind. Notice in, in the beginning of this section, notice where Jesus begins. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So if you imagine where Jesus is physically for all time before creation, Jesus was with God. And now look at verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is Jesus leaving the right hand of God and entering into this world, right? And doing something. Now notice how the text ends. Where is Jesus at the end of the prologue? It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. So where is Jesus right now? John says he's at the right hand of the father. And so what is John doing? He was with God. He came to the earth to do something. He accomplished something. And now he's returned back to his father. And in his return, his returning, he's left us some things that are worth pondering, that are worth cherishing, that are worth leaning into, that are worth celebrating, that are worth resting in. And that's where I want to go this morning. Now, before we get there, John wants us to know who is Jesus. Then he wants us to know what has he given you right now to be enjoyed? And then three, how must we respond? So who is Jesus? There's a lot of confusion over Jesus these days. Some say he's just a prophet. Some say he's just a man. Others say he's kind of God, but not really God, like the Father is God. In fact, I came across it this week on Facebook that there was a post that, that I, I don't know if, it went, if it's gone viral, but here's what someone wrote. And I saw it retweeted, I mean reposted. Stop giving Jesus more credit than you give God. God is the creator, right? And this person was a recent convert, so it does not appear that they've been discipled well. But the Bible in numerous places affirms the divinity of Christ. And we have to look no farther than our passage this morning. And as a side note, if you were to read John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, you're going to see some things that are different, right? That Mark completely skips Jesus's birth. Jesus is like a full grown man who's on mission. In other words, the Jesus you see in Mark is one who's ready. He's like, I'm ready to go. Let me out the gates, daddy. Let me go get him. Let me go do it. Right. That's the Jesus in Mark. He's on mission and he's eager. You get to Matthew and Luke. Then you start to see, OK, there's a virgin birth. Right. You, there's angels. And, and Luke is tracing Jesus's uh, genealogy back to Adam, back to God. So Jesus is the second Adam, the son promised born of woman. Uh, in Matthew, he traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham and to David. So Jesus is the, the, the Abrahamic son. Jesus is the Davidic son. But did you notice in John's gospel, there's no mention of Mary. 
There's no mention of a manger. There's no mention of no room for him in an inn. Now, these gospels are meant to be written, read in concert. They're a symphony. But what John is emphasizing is the, human, I mean, the, the, the divinity of Jesus. There's another book in the Bible that begins with in the beginning, and that's Genesis. And what John is saying is that in the beginning, when, when the account or the history of Genesis begins with the beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of matter, the beginning of humanity, in the beginning, the word was already there. Right? He was already there. He goes on to say that the, the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made by him. It reads as if John is saying, hey, that, 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 that it could be that the father imagines creation. That it could be that, that when Genesis says, and the Lord formed Adam out of the dirt, dirt of the ground and breathed into him and he became a living creature, that it, it could be that what John is saying is that, look, the father architect everything, but then the son is the agent. The son is the one who is forming. That, that it could be that what John is saying is that, that the world was made through him and when the creator of the world came to the world, the world did not know him, that what John is doing it's inviting us into the mystery of Jesus. On the one hand, you have everything created by the powerful word of God out of nothing. And then John seems to be saying, but this word right here was the agent of creation. It's a mystery that John is inviting us to lean into. But notice what it says in verse 14. There's more mystery that no one has ever seen God the Father. But the Son has revealed him to us. And this is profound. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord on a throne high and lifted up. And he sees the garments of the Lord filling the temple. And he sees six seraphim. And they have six wings. And two wings they cover their legs. And two wings they fly with. And two other wings they, they cover their, their eyes so that they are not beholding the majesty of the Lord. And then this same John writes the book of Revelation. He says, I saw creatures. And they had six wings. And what we're supposed to do is say, wait a minute. John sees the same creatures that Isaiah saw. And even those angelic creatures are not beholding the splendor and the holiness and the majesty of God. And then Paul would later say, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You catch what the Bible is saying? That's creating a dilemma for you and I. We can't see God. We don't know what he's like. We don't know how we can be reconciled to him. And that's a problem. Unless there was someone in his right hand who was very God of very God. Equal in glory and splendor and holiness and majesty. And what if that second person of the Trinity agreed before the foundations of the world to be incarnate by the third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit. And what if the Holy Spirit could somehow do what only God can do is somehow put 
God in the womb of a woman and not let her sinful nature be passed to him and, and, and hold together in one person humanity and divinity so that the divinity of Jesus did not crack out and break through his humanity, right? Like that's the stuff that John is inviting us to lean into. And what if as fully God and as fully man, Jesus would obey where you fall short. And as God, he would bear God's own judgment. You see, this is not a what if. This is what we believe happened in the person and work of Christ. All those passages in scripture where God says, I will rescue my people. I will shepherd my people. I will come to their aid. I will be their shield. I will be their deliverer. They're met and fulfilled in Jesus. The coming of Christ is none other than God himself coming to us. He is truly human. And he is also truly God. He comes from God. He's the son of God. His home is glory. So uh, John wants us to know that. So I became a believer in uh, late winter of uh, late fall, early winter of 2001. And those six months to seven months kind of before it were tumultuous, <laughs> like tumultuous. Aaliyah died in a plane crash. You know, y'all remember that? I do. And I was like kind of young. Young people don't die early, right? And then 9-11 happened that fall. Well, before that, our school, Alabama A&M, took a trip to Cancun. And so me and some fraternity brothers, we decided, yeah, we're going to go. What, what, a, what a great way to, to put the icing on the cake of our college experience, right? And so we went. I was not a believer then. And so it was the last night of the trip. And we decided to go out and we would party. And I had way too much to drink. And so I decided that I'm just going to go home. I'm going to go to the hotel and sleep it off. And I'll be ready to go the next morning when we pack our bags and head back to Alabama. The last thing I remember was walking out of the club and getting onto a bus. And I woke up the next morning. I was not in my hotel room. I was not in a room that I even recognized. And so I woke up and I looked at my watch and I panicked because I knew that, bro, you're going to get left in Cancun. They're, they're going back. And so I ran out of the hotel room and I didn't have my wallet. And so I was begging people for money. Like, I got to make it back. I got to make it back. And I didn't know Spanish, so people couldn't understand what I was saying. And finally, somebody gave me some coins to catch the bus. And I made it back to the hotel and the whole school who went on the trip, they're all outside on the steps. And my fraternity brothers had packed my bags and they had looked for me all night and I, I barely made it back onto the bus and I didn't have my wallet 
And so the only way I got back into uh, back home was because I have a tattoo on my arm with my name on it. And the chaperones showed the, I'm serious, this is before 9-11, months before 9-11. So all I showed them was my tattoo and the chaperone said, yeah, he's one of our students. And so I get to get back on a plane. It's wild, y'all, it's wild. <laughs> And so when I, I finally made it on the plane, and the only thing I could think about was, who helped me? Like, why were they so kind to me? Why did they put me in their own hotel room? What's their names? Where, where are they from? And so here I am, a couple weeks being back, I got to get new IDs, new credit cards, new debit cards, I got to cancel everything, and then I get a package in the mail, and it's from Colorado. I don't know anyone in Colorado. So I opened the package, and there was my wallet. All of my money was there, all of my credit cards, IDs. And inside it was a letter. And it says, Elbert, we found you on the bus. And you were out of it. And my wife and I, my new wife and I, put you in our room. And we were going to get you breakfast that morning and you were gone when we got back. And they had their names at the bottom and their phone number. And I called them. And for those two weeks, that gnawing question of who, who was kind to me? Who took care of me? Where are they from? That's what John is doing. He's saying you and I were hopeless and we were out of it. And someone came and lifted you up and put you in his room and he cared for you. And John says, this is not anyone other than Jesus who is God and man who was from heaven. Which moves us to the second point. What is ours right now as a result of Jesus's first mission? Now, as we think about this text, we gotta, you gotta know this is a prologue. This is like the appetizer to the main course. And so all of the blessings that are now ours are not laid out here. But there's enough here where we can say, okay, I, I, I can see it now. Now, how do we know that John wants us to anchor onto and latch onto things that are ours right now? Look at verse nine, the true light, which gives, you catch that? He gives light, right? Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right. Right. So Jesus is giving light. He's giving us adoption into his family. 
And then look at verse 16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so if you're asking me what three blessings are ours right now, as a result of Jesus's rescue mission, what I'm going to tell you is this. You have the right. He has made you a child of God. He promises to give you light. The darkness will not overtake you. And he gives you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And these are yours now. Now, first, look at verse 12. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John has already been talking about the first family. And I don't mean the first family in the White House or the governor's mansion. I mean like the real first family. Like the first family before all earthly families. The family of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, who for eternity loved one another, knew one another, cherished one another, valued one another. Right? He's already using that language. Because he talks about the son from the father. He talks about the son revealing the father. Well, here's what John does next. He actually says Jesus's mission was to engraft you back into that family. In a different kind of way. We're not God, so I'm not saying that. But we are back in fellowship with the father and the son and the spirit. Yes, Jesus came to make us servants of the Most High God and not servants of the flesh. He, made, he came to rescue us and make us friends of God and not friends with the world. But saints, he also came to make you children, sons and daughters. The son is our brother. The son's father is now your father. And this is not by human effort or human will. It's from above. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he has a chapter on the fatherhood of God or on adoption. And he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child as having God as his or her father. For everything that is distinctly Christian, opposed to being merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of God as our Father. You catch that? That what makes Christianity different from Judaism is this, that, that, that God is now our Father. Andreas Kostenberger writes, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews are called God's children, Deuteronomy 14. Even God's son, even his firstborn, firstborn son, Exodus 4. Yet the Old Testament saints never called God Father or Abba. Now, this may cause some of us pain or some of you pain if you've not had an earthly father or if you've not had a good earthly father. Any comparison to God being father, it evokes pain and sorrow and sadness. And I'm sorry. Packer goes on to write, we must not trust our own emotions and project onto God the Father 
what we see in broken earthly fathers. He says, if you want to see what the fatherhood of God is like, look at what Jesus says about his father. You catch that? Don't trust your feelings and don't trust what you think. He's saying, hey, why don't we let Jesus tell us about his relationship with the father? And here's what Packer does. He starts to unpack different passages in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his relationship with the father. He says, the father has loved me. I have obeyed my father and I remain in his love. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Fatherhood of God implies deep affection. Fatherhood of God implies fellowship and communion. I am not alone, says Jesus. My father is with me. The one who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone. John 16, John 8. The fatherhood of God implies honor and power. God will exalt the son. Father, glorify your son. The father entrusts all judgment to the son so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. The fatherhood of God also implies authority. The father commands and disposes. The son came not to do his will, but the will of his father who sent him. I must do the work of my father that he gave me to do. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Do you see what John is saying? Have you ever thought about this? That if you're in Christ, no matter what you've done, and no matter what the world says about you, he looks at you. And he says, this is my beloved daughter. And I am so pleased with her. You think about that? That can you think about it? That, that, that the father is there and never, ever, ever leaving you always accessible. The door to his room is always open, right? You never get a shut door with the father. He's never too busy to be do, doing something else that he can't attend to you. That he always invites you in. That the father is angered when you're mistreated. The father is invested in your maturity and growth. God views us, loves us, and parents us the same way he does his one and only son. He's the perfect parent, faithful in love, generous and thoughtful, interested in everything that you do, angered when you're mistreated, defends us when we're harmed, disciplines us in love with appropriateness to move us to repent. He respects our individuality. He has no favorites. He's skillful in training you up. He's wise in guiding you. He's always available, helping us find ourselves in maturity, integrity, and uprightness, there to console us in hard times, and he is worthy to be obeyed. This is yours. John says, we also, as a gift, 
have light. He says, true light, which gives light to everyone. And to understand what John is doing there with light, you kind of have to understand the rest of the gospel. Darkness is synonymous with death and rebellion and blindness, spiritual blindness and evil. That Jesus' verdict was that light entered the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That the creator of the world came to his own, but his own closed the door on him. That's darkness, right? And what what, what John is saying is that in Jesus, he opens your eyes. In the same way that God drove back darkness in creation, he drives back darkness in your own heart, your own life. There's a beautiful scene in Exodus when all of Egypt had darkness and God's people in Goshen had light. They could see, they could go about their lives. That's one of the reasons why when people talk about conversion, you often will hear one day the lights came on. Why do we use that language? We're using that language because one day we were rebels. And the next day, we were worshipers. One day we saw sin as something enticing. And the next day when the lights came on, we hated it. One day we saw Jesus as a joke, as peripheral. And the next day, he is central to everything. One day we were afraid of death. And the next day, oh, death, where is your sting? One day we saw the gospel as foolish. And the next day, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. One day we look at image bearers as people to abuse or misuse. And the next day, we see God in them. One day we live for ourselves. And the next day, we'll die for his glory. One day we view our money as our own to be hoarded and spent on whatever we want. And the next day, we want to be stewards of what he has entrusted us with. Why? Light. Jesus has shone into your heart. He has transformed your heart and your soul. You're not walking in darkness anymore. And the third thing we have here is grace upon grace. Notice what he says. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There are two different ways scholars try to interpret this. One, we think that what Jesus, what John is doing is comparing the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Jesus. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth now come through Jesus. And, and, I, and I get that, right? On the one hand, the law is gracious. That if we did not know what sin was, right, which is what the law does. The law says if you want to see how sinful you are, put it up against the law of God. And you will see all types of coveting, all types of murder, all types of idolatry, right? All types of profaning the Sabbath, all types of adultery, all types of stealing. And that's what the law does. The law points out sin and then shows us that we can't live up to God's standard. But it's still gracious, because I guess what God could do is just not tell us and, and send us all to hell, right? I guess, you know, 
but he doesn't. He graciously reveals our, our sinful humanity. And then he makes propitiation for it. He, he, he commands Moses to build uh, the tabernacle and the temple, the tabernacle and the holy of holies. And, and all of that was to so that God could overlook iniquity for the day where he would pour it out on Jesus. And so what he could be saying is that, look, this is what you get through Moses. It's gracious. And what you have in Jesus is so much better. The provision of sin, the righteousness that is apart from the law. Right. That's what he could say. But other scholars will say, hey, that, that there's more. That the older NIV translate grace upon grace as one blessing after another. The net translated one gracious gift after another. Another scholar translates this, this phrase, grace upon grace, denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. Did y'all catch that? And this is where I think John is doing. Look at what he says in verse 16. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So it's the image of Jesus being full and overflowing with loving kindnesses and compassions. And what Jesus does when we're engrafted into the family of God is open the floodgates of grace, right? So that we receive kindness after kindness after kindness after a kindness. And they can never be exhausted because he has no measure of it. And I don't think we're called to choose. I think it's both. Beloved, God will never stop providing you with his grace. The grace of repentance, the grace of joy, the grace of hope, the grace of unmerited favor, the grace of being inside of a forever family, the grace of a new heart, the grace of food, the grace of shelter, the grace of clothing, the grace of being raised from the dead and all the future graces that will be there to meet you tomorrow and next month and next year, that this is a promise that is yours right now that, that you We cannot exhaust the grace of God. You can't. He has more of it to give than you will ever need. Let that sink in, saints. What does this do for our affection for God? Our love for God, our worship for the Lord. What does this do to us when we just let this wash over us that we are loved and known and cherished and valued and forgiven and accepted forever and ever and ever and ever? Andre, will you put up that last slide? So if we're thinking about the already and the not yet. We don't yet have glorified bodies. We're waiting on that for the second coming, right? But here's what we do have right now. You are a child of God. You have God's promise of light right now. And you have grace upon grace upon grace. And the invitation is to keep reading, keep leaning in, because you're going to fill that thing up pretty fast.
Thank you, Andre. So Nissan had a tagline. It was back in 96. I don't know if they still use it. But any car can get you where you're going. It takes a special car to get you there smiling. Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. You see, I think we get so caught up and locked in on the future where we're going and what's going to be true at the second coming of Jesus. And what John is saying, no, baby, enjoy the ride. You got grace right now. You're a child right now. You're in his family right now. Which moves us to our last point, and it is really quick. How do we respond? There are two ways that we're called to respond in this passage. And the first, John says in verse 12, he says, to all who did receive him. Okay, John, what does receiving mean? He then qualifies it. He says, who believes in his name. And so what John is saying is that that's the first response, to believe in the name of Jesus. And when he says name there, I don't think he means believe in the literal name of Jesus. I think he's saying believe in the identity of Jesus, that this is God and man who's come to save you. Believe in him, rest in him, receive him, open your arms and, and draw him in. It's believing that all of history was marching towards that baby's birth and death so that God's mercy and kindness and love might march its way to you. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe? Don't treat Jesus like we do telemarketers. I don't stop. I, I keep my phone on. Do not disturb now. Y'all just, y'all calling me too much. I can't get nothing done. That you just calling and calling and calling and texting and I swerve you, right? I just, I'm sending you straight to the voicemail. Jesus says, don't do me like that. Answer, respond, let me in. He's calling us to believe, but he's also calling us to bear witness. Did you notice John the Baptist, verse six? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all others might believe through him. That yes, John is a prophet and he's different. He's a weird figure when you go read him. But we're called to bear witness, right? We're called to talk to others about the greatest gift that God has ever given humanity. And you're going to have opportunities in these coming days. One of the questions you are bound to hear is, how was your Christmas? What'd you get? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could say, hey, I got Jesus and I see him more and I love him more and I know who he is and I know what's mine. That's my Christmas. Let's pray. 
Father, we bless you and love you. And we thank you for the way that you have lavished us with your grace, your adoption, and the promise of light, even in darkness. Father, I pray for those who might not know you. Lord, may today be a day that they don't swerve you, but that they receive you by faith and entrust themselves to their maker and their king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.